0: So that's Isaiah chapter 45, starting at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a a saviour. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. to him shall come um, to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory.
1: Acts chapter 13, I'm beginning to read at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, "Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it." So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, "Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people chose Israel, the God of his people Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt." And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be a standard and perish; for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath and After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. Who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God.
2: Thank you very much indeed, Chris, for reading what was a sermon. And this evening we are in the Turkish lakes. We're at what was once a major highway intersection of the ancient world. We are in the modern-day Isparta region of Turkey, Persidian Antioch, where. Today you will find the small town of Yalvak. Maybe you've been on holiday there. We're with the Apostle Paul, and we're listening to the first recorded sermon of his. So we have the message that changed the world. He was the Apostle to the nations. And in a sense, what we're engaged in for the next uh, 20 minutes or so is really rather a strange exercise. I'm sure what we've got here are only sermon notes of the Apostle Paul. It's not the full thing. I suspect he spoke for well over an hour, possibly maybe two. But it is the sermon that changed the world, or rather the content of this sermon is what changed the world. And we are going to have a sermon on a sermon. So it's a slightly unusual activity. Now, at first glance, a skim read, it's possible to note just three things about it. Initially, God is the prime actor. You can't miss that. From verse 17 through to verse 23, 12 verbs, the subject of 11 of the 12 is God. He is the prime actor. God chose, God led, God put up with, God gave the land, the judges, God rescued. The second thing. God is the prime actor. Jesus is the focus. Just look at verse 23, would you, for a moment. Of this man, that's David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. And from that point on, the sermon is all Jesus. Him, him, him. Jesus, him, him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the third thing to note is that salvation is the subject. So God is the prime mover. Uh, Jesus is the focus. Salvation is the subject. Look at verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Look at verses 32 and 33, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to His fathers, this He's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And then look at verse 38 and 30. let it be 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, the sermon, even in its note form, I think is electric. It's really direct. It's kind of between the eyes stuff. And you know how sometimes you're sitting in a meeting and you think, gosh, this this is directed absolutely straight at me, as if we're the only person in the room. And that's what you get from verse 16 onwards. You know, the synagogue service began with the reciting of the Shema, that's the law in brief, and went on with prayers and readings from Moses, writings from the prophets. And then the rulers of the synagogue would look around and ask if anybody had anything to say. Now, that's slightly unnerving. I'm just looking for somebody. I'm not going to do I'm not going to do it. But quite unnerving, actually. They settle on the apostle Paul, who's in the back of the synagogue there, And then verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then verse 26, he says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. And then verse 32, and we bring you. And then verse 38, let it be known to you brothers and sisters. I mean, it's really gripping and electric stuff. Asks somebody, well, the issue here is salvation, but you know, I really don't think I need saving. Uh, I can zone out then for the next 15 or 20 minutes. This isn't about me. It's a great exercise in the study of ancient history. It's the first sermon preached in non, um, by, by Paul, the, the great evangelist of the nations. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of skilled oratory, but Salvation? Oh, the Tory party, they, they mean may need salvation, not me. Well, hold on a second. Let's look at the very end of the sermon, just for a moment, as it were, before we get into it. Verses 13 and 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There seems to be a suggestion here of being enslaved, being in chains, not being free. The law of Moses is God's moral and spiritual standard. In the law of Moses, God spells out what he expects and what he demands of men and women like you and me. The law of the Moses contains the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses is much more than just the Ten Commandments. The law of Moses demands both that the law be met And also that judgment be delivered. Until we see God's perfect standard, the law, it's possible for you and me to consider that, well, all is well. I don't need salvation. I'm perfectly decent enough. I'm certainly not as bad as the person sitting next to me, or whatever you may say. And anyway, my mum thinks I'm great. So Spurs may no need salvation after being beaten by Manchester United in the middle of the week. They must be pretty bad at the moment. But me, no, all is well. Many years ago, shortly after I left the military, I went to work for a school and had played a little bit of squash in my time in the army, socially and recreationally. I didn't think I was too bad and used to win the odd match and was, you know, in those days very, very fit, long since the deg- degradation has set in. But at the school that I worked at, there was this young lad of about 15. And how can I put it without being rude? He was a really scrawny individual, if if you're allowed to refer to somebody like that. He played for the squash for one of the kind of teams, you know, but nothing very sort of grand. And so I challenged him to a match. Two games in, having failed to win a single point, and with my lungs dragging several feet behind my body, he turned to me and asked, Uh, Sir, would you like a lesson? (laughs) Now, I could have strangled him, but I restrained myself. You know, all looks well until you meet perfection. You can kid yourself that all is well until you meet the standard. I don't need saving. What about the law? What about God's standard? The first four of the Ten Commandments have to do with God. They are, if you like, vertical, summarized in the Shema, actually, which would have just been read out in the synagogue. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not make an idol for yourself. You shall keep the Sabbath. The second six have to do with other people, if you like, the horizontal. Summed up, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Honour your father and mother. You shall not steal. You shall not murder. You shall not covet. And so on. But the law not only demands perfection morally and spiritually, it also demands perfection judicially. God actually says in the Lord, in the law, I shall not let the guilty go unpunished. I don't need salvation? Really? You know, I sometimes say, let's put God's law to one side for a moment. Let's look even at our own best standards. Let's picture our story and the standards we would like to hold ourselves to. And then let's picture our own story. I mean, we manicure it. We select images and achievements to post on our own story. We edit it. This is the best me. But what about the me that we edited out? My thoughts, my words, my deeds. I don't need saving. I've been preparing to speak on this passage for a number of days. And as happens, and it will happen to you as you start to get a bit more ancient, suddenly something brought to mind a particular individual who we knew in my class aged 11 and how unutterably unpleasant we were to him. I will not let the guilty go unpunished, says God. And so people of St. Helens, dear brothers and sisters... Congregation at the 4 p.m., I bring to you good news, great news of salvation. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You know that famous hymn, My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God is the focus, uh, the center of it, the the heart of it, the uh, architect of it. Jesus is the focus of it. Salvation is what it's all about. And really, the sermon has got three very simple parts to it. First, God planned salvation. Then God, Jesus, delivered salvation. And finally, you and I can have salvation. And I want us to walk us through each of those. God planned it. Verses 16 through 23 is a track back to the backstory of Jesus Actually, there are only 145 words here covering the history of Israel right the way through to the kingship of David. And it is designed to zone us in on Jesus all the way through. Actually, the one thing the Apostle Paul is interested in is Jesus, 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 Jesus. But this is, if you like, the back story. He deals with the origins of Israel in verse 17 the foundation of Israel in verse 18, the inheritance of Israel in the land in verse 19, the emergence of the kingdom in verses 21 and 22, and the point to which he is headed is verse 23, of King David's offspring. God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised And Paul's point is a very simple one. Jesus did not come as a bolt from the blue. Jesus was not unexpected. It was not as though God woke up one morning, looked out of his bathroom window as he was getting dressed, peered down onto planet Earth and thought, oh dear, things aren't going terribly well down there. I think I better conjure up some plan." Now, the backstory of Jesus stretches right the way back into the history of the people of Israel. We, we run a, 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 an overview course, a Bible overview course, that takes us back through it because this is so important. If we're going to understand Jesus, we need to understand the framework into which he stepped. Now, we run this Bible overview course. It's around 30 weeks, three 10 weeks' terms, Term one is devoted to the first five books of the Bible. We don't get to the kingdom of Israel till several weeks into term two, and Paul gets there in 145 words. I'm not suggesting you save the time and just do this, but it's interesting. Now, I don't think we need to make a lot of this, but Paul doesn't even mention Moses at this stage. It's all about Jesus. He doesn't delve into the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's Jesus, 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 all the way. And I guess he thinks, well, the people in the synagogue, they've just had the law of Moses read, but they seem to be missing a key ingredient, Jesus. God planned salvation. Really key for us to grasp that Jesus didn't come as a bolt from the blue, There's a huge backstory, and it had been God's intention to send Jesus a savior right from the start. Jesus delivers salvation. From verse 24 right the way through to verse 37, it's Jesus all the way. Verses 24 through 25, John the Baptist prepares prepares for Jesus. 26 through 29, the Jews crucify Jesus 30 through 33, God raises Jesus. And then verse 34 to 37, we're going to look at more closely. The resurrection of Jesus confirms his identity and demands that all the blessings God promised for a kingdom that were made to King David are now to be found for us in Jesus. Have a look at 27 to 29. They're remarkable Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Jesus nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled the scriptures and the prophets by condemning Jesus. And though they found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Jesus... They took Jesus down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Now, you can see what the apostle is saying here, that the Jews of Jesus' day failed to make sense of their own scriptures, failed to grasp just who Jesus was when he walked the earth, crucified him, though they knew him to be innocent, and in their defiant ignorance fulfilled the promises of their own scriptures. It's a remarkable thing. And I'm sure Paul probably spent, I'm sure Paul spent a good deal of time on it, that such was the sovereign plan of God that even the wicked ignorance of men failed absolutely to grasp the royal kingship of Jesus. And even as they crucified him, Accomplished the perfect salvation that God had promised. I mean, you couldn't make it up. But God raised Jesus, verse 30, and for many days he appeared. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And now what Paul does is he takes three key promises from the Old Testament to show us what all this means. The first is Psalm 2. You can see it there. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. God promised in Psalm 2 that his king would be established on his royal throne forever. There's a wonderful picture in Psalm 2 of the nations of the world shaking their fist at God and trying to overthrow God's king. And God, seated in heaven, chuckles to himself at the futile rebellion of men and women against his king whom he has installed for eternity on his holy hill. when I was a younger guy, I had a Bit of a temper. And when I was at school, played a bit of rugby. And I was speaking on Psalm 2 this week, which reminded me of it. I remember playing a match against the teachers. You know, sometimes they have matches like that. And uh, I, I, I remember there was a particular master called Mr. Rutter, who was in, I have none of his relatives here, who was uh, especially irritating. And at one point, I found myself in the scrum and not thinking anybody was watching, aged 11 and had completely lost it, and was just pummeling Rutter with both fists as hard as I possibly could. What I didn't realize was that the whole of the rest of the scrum had peeled away around me. My head was buried in his chest, and I was flailing at it, and he was just standing there laughing. And Psalm 2 has that image of God. God holds them in derision. I have set my king on my holy hill for eternity. Then, Paul quotes from Isaiah 55. And as for the fact that he raised Jesus from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isaiah 55, a key passage that God's promise to King David of all the blessings that he's promised are available to all of God's people, if only they will come to him. And then Psalm 16. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, a promise that God's king would reign for eternity, never to face the pangs of death. You'll notice again the importance of the Old Testament. You'll never truly understand Jesus until we get to grips with the Old Testament. Jesus did not come as a bolt from the blue. He was long promised. He stepped into this grid and matrix of expectation. And we will only comprehend Jesus truly as we understand him in that context. So rule, resurrection, and blessing through Jesus. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. And Isaiah 55 is one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Stop looking around everywhere else to other things that will not truly satisfy you. Come, come to the feast that God has prepared. Incline your ear, come to me, says God, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's a huge invitation to anybody who would come to God, to the feast that he has prepared, to come and have food without payment, free, a great feast. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. You can have it. We began by talking about salvation. I suggested that someone might suggest, well, I don't actually need saving. We looked briefly at the law of Moses. Somebody once said to me, the law is a little bit like a mirror. It shows us what we're truly like. You know when you've been out, you've got mud all over you, and then you look in the mirror, and it shows you what you're really like. You can walk around for months on end with something wrong with your hair or your face if you don't actually look in the mirror. The law acts as a mirror. It exposes filth. The law acts as a benchmark. It sets God's perfect standard. The law acts as an absolute, a spotlight on the soul. An ultraviolet indicator. The law shows us up. The trouble with a mirror on its own, it's not able to deal with whatever we've got on our face. We need the basin. And Paul says to the congregation, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who rose, the one who rules. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. That word freed is the word justified. It's a legal word. It's a word that speaks of God declaring a person in the right. And through the death of Jesus who died to carry God's judgment at sin, God can count us in the right if only we will come to him for salvation. And so God promised a savior king. Jesus delivered as the savior king in Jesus. We can have salvation. God planned it. Jesus delivered it. You can have it. And there is the first sermon of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle to the nations. Your Apostle. My Apostle. The one teaching. The non-Jews, if you like. But here he is in the synagogue. God and his plan. Jesus and his work. Salvation and our need. This then tells us what true Christian preaching is. God is the center of it. Jesus is the subject of it. Salvation is the issue in true Christian preaching. True Christian preaching is about God and his plan. It's about Jesus and his work. It's about salvation and our need. That should be our subject Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. Not men and women and what we can achieve. And how can we can live a better life, but the salvation that we need and the God who has planned and delivered it through his son, Jesus Christ. And as I've been preparing, I thought to myself, well, there may well be some here who have never themselves come to Jesus for that salvation. We have this great burden of our own failure that we carry round with us day after day after day. We think we might be able to do something about it, if only we can make amends. But we simply go on adding to the tally. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Jesus, everyone who believes in Jesus is freed from sin, that which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. It's a glorious message. No wonder it changed the world because we are being offered free forgiveness by the God who made us. I'm going to pray and then we're going to turn to question time. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we praise you for the forgiveness that you have bought through us, planned by you, delivered by the Lord Jesus, available to anybody who puts their trust in him. We thank you for this rescue that you have won and that you now offer to the world. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: William thank you very much as uh, William just mentioned we now have a question time we mentioned it earlier you'll see on the service sheet again the number that you need to text in or you can do it through the website questions on the last few weeks in our series and acts or from what we've just heard and uh, clearly there were questions on people's minds from previous weeks so I've got quite a few of those so we'll come to those but then also from today do send them in and I'll try and have a look through. William, I think this is a general question that a number have had from Acts as a whole. Um, We can proclaim the gospel without the need for miracles, but wouldn't it be easier if we did have miracles to confirm what we said, like with the apostles?
2: Well, I think that's a very interesting um, question and one people often ask. And I will often take people back to um, the gospels to answer it. Because even when Jesus found people putting their trust in him because of the miracles, he then went back to them and John 4, John, uh, the end of John 2, he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of a man. So even in The Gospels, Jesus doesn't think that faith in him based on the spectacular, the miracle, is what biblical faith is about. And when you stop and think about it, that has to, it kind of has to be right. Because if my faith is built on the fact that Jesus does something spectacular rather than on his promise, his word, what he says that we trust him at his word. Every time I make a difficulty, I'm going to be asking for another spectacular, another spectacular, another spectacular. And so Jesus deliberately steers people away from any kind of trust in him on the basis of spectacular miracle. When you come to the Acts of the Apostles, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul describes the miracles that the Apostle do as the mark of an Apostle. They're to mark out those original eyewitnesses, and they are unique to the generation of the apostle. Now, sometimes God does allow spectacular miracles. Sometimes it happens, and you hear of it from time to time. But we need to be crystal clear that faith based on signs and wonders of that sort is not the kind of faith that Jesus is driving for in the Gospels. And if you want to come and ask me about that afterwards, I'll show you show you that go to John 2 verse 22 23 24 and you'll find it expressed crystal clarity there many put their trust in him because of the miracles he was doing but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of a man and then chapter 4 you get the same idea and then him saying will you not believe in my word the kind of faith Jesus wants is a trust in his word i think that did you want to add to that uh, anaire
3: well, it's striking, isn't it? In Acts, we keep trying to work out what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. And it's interesting, in Acts chapter 2, I was speaking on this this morning. So as we are told about the early church, the very early church, we're told about their life together, Acts 2.43, we are told straight away many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Mm. So it's very interesting, early on in Acts, Luke is telling us, putting that marker in, this is an apostles thing even as we then read on. So it's in Acts that he's trying to help us. To very helpful. It. I mean,
2: check it out in 2 Corinthians twelve twelve, and also in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, you get the same thing. Yeah.
3: Related, William, I'll ask it just as the question is put. Why doesn't St. Helens pray for healing very prominently if you believe God can heal today? Oh, I
2: do pray for healing, and I, I hope you do too. Um, I happen to believe that God has given us supernatural gift of medicine. I call it supernatural because medics can only do their medical work because God sustains the universe supernaturally. And so when I'm praying for people's healing, I pray that he will use that which he sustains supernaturally, that is the whole universe and the gifts of people and the fact that they can breathe and medics can do their work, and that they will be healed through the gifts of medicine. Or, if God determines in another supernatural way. What I get twitchy about is when we confine the supernatural to a narrow band of stuff which we can't explain, which ends up making God very, very small. Now, the biblical picture is that God made absolutely everything. You only draw your next breath because God allows you. The sun only, as it were, gets up in the morning, forgive uh, the way of putting it, because god sustains the universe so the whole thing is supernatural and we don't want to narrow god down so uh, yeah i pray i mean i've been praying particularly for an individual to be healed um uh, and, and we do pray regularly for for our sick at least i, I hope you do
3: yeah. now last week we thought about magic and superstition question here is does magic have real power How should we think about
2: it? Yeah. Well, in in one sense, Satan has no power. It's all devolved because he's a created being, uh, rebellious. We don't know exactly how that rebellion happened. But Satan has no real power of his own. The only power Satan has comes through his deception. So the only power of Satan in the magic and the superstitious is persuading us by his deceptive means to think that this is somehow powerful. That's why the gospel liberates us from superstition. Because once we realize there's only one God, he's established his holy, his king on his holy hill. Jesus rules and has at the cross defeated Satan and will ultimately bring Satan to nothing at the end. So then you begin to realize, actually, Satan has no real power. It's all kind of a great, it's all a great bluff. And as I speak the gospel truth, in the face of satanic deception, well, light scatters darkness, and truth uh, dispels lies. And and some of the some of Wesley's great hymns carry that, don't they? That sense of that you know, demons fear and flee at the proclamation of the gospel. Now, you come across some Christians who I think have bought the deception, and they give back, if you like, totally unhelpfully kind of power to the devil because they they have they haven't realized that we have been completely set free from all of that by jesus through his death and resurrection uh, i just don't don't be don't don't allow anybody to, to to get you as it were back into um fear of the superstitious like that
3: well now back onto the i mean more the superstition uh, people around us really do seem to believe in things like touching wood having a lucky mascot, doing a particular superstitious routine. How can we engage with people like this?
2: Yeah, we, I mean, our family always used to blow kisses at magpies. I don't think the magpies noticed, but, uh, you know, one for sorry, two for dry. And if you saw one on its own, you knew you had to blow a kiss and all that sort of stuff. And I think um, the way to, you know, what I think questions are always best in those kind of, rather than lectures. Um, and I, I think asking, you know what? You know, why do you think touching wood, you know, what, what do you think? And very quickly, I think we find people, actually, it's just based on pure kind of inherited myth. And, and then one might be able to say something like, you know, I find it so helpful not to have to worry about those sort of things. And perhaps to go to somewhere like Matthew chapter 6, you know, have, um, do not be anxious. You have a loving Father in heaven who cares for you. Um, You know, and and actually that passage in Matthew six, you know, the birds, he clothes the birds of the air, Um, you know, the flowers of the field, he dresses, you know, and we have our father in heaven. So I think questions rather than lectures is absolutely key in all of this. What would you say to that? Yeah.
3: That sounds very helpful. Um, <laughs> coming to this week's uh, passage, someone's pointed out correctly that Peter back in chapter 2 and Paul here seem very pointedly to show that the Jewish audience killed Jesus mm. and were guilty. I mean, how should we relate to that? How does that relate to all of us being guilty? Are we all guilty of killing Jesus?
2: Well, I think it's really interesting, isn't it, that in, both in the Gospels and here, Peter doesn't leave the world out. Uh, sorry, Paul doesn't leave the world out. He gave, they gave him over to Pilate. So he's very, very clear. Uh, they handed him to Pilate and asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out, so yes, there is guilt absolutely everywhere. And when you go to the Gospels, there's guilt with the soldiers, there's guilt with the crowd, there's guilt with the governor, you know, there's guilt with the Jews, there's guilt everywhere. But I think the point, I mean, Paul's in the synagogue. And he's speaking to Jews here, and he's wanting to say, Look, you may try to do away with him, but God raised him, and your very act of seeking to overthrow the Savior brought about the salvation that I'm proclaiming to you. You have to think about these guys. You know, many of them may well have been in Jerusalem in the incident you just mentioned in Acts 2. Because, you know, at Passover, people flocked down to Jerusalem. And at the Feast of Pentecost, Jerusalem was heaving with Jews from all over the ancient world. And I think a lot of these guys probably, they may even even have been at Pentecost, some of them, heard the gospel then that Peter preached. And then Paul preaches again.
3: A few questions about, I mean, how you presented (coughs) this in terms of a model sermon, so to speak. Why, I'll ask two at the same time, why does this come first of all of Paul's sermon? And why does it come kind of here in the book of Acts?
2: Okay, so why does it come first? I think, I think the way Luke writes is to assume that we've read the preceding chapters. Uh, I know, you know that may not be the kind of way we all, we all read nowadays, but I think Luke assumes that we're concentrating. And so I think what he does is he lays out for us a classic sermon from Peter if you like, in Acts 2. This is the content, the fundamental content of Christian preaching. And then in Acts 10, you've got another classic sermon, which is Peter, as the gospel is about to go to the Gentiles, showing this is a classic Christian sermon that is going to go to the ends of the earth. At the beginning of Paul's ministry here in block four of, uh, uh, of Acts material, um, the fourth major section we get laid out for us Paul's preaching. And if you look at Paul's preaching and compare it to Peter's preaching, it's basically the same. And I think that's deliberate. From here on in, we'll hear other sermons of Paul. But I think that what Luke records for us is kind of the new bits. So when you get to Acts 17, for example, Paul speaks to the Areopagus, but he's already preached in the marketplace. And I'm assuming that what he preached in the marketplace was Acts 13. So when he then goes to the Areopagus, he's having a follow-up meeting from those who effectively heard Acts 13 in the marketplace. And I think, I think, I mean, you may think I'm rabbiting on on this. I think it really matters because you got here, same as Acts 2, here is your blueprint sermon. And then and, and why, why here? Because this is Paul beginning his ministry to the nations, um, as we saw last week.
3: Again, I'll compile a couple of questions which are very much related. Is this a model evangelistic sermon or a model sermon? After all, this passage doesn't speak at all about Christian living.
2: Yeah, yeah, no. It's, I mean, it is an evangelistic sermon, isn't it? I think that's absolutely right. Thank you.
3: Acts lays a clear pattern of preaching for the sermons. How does this fit with Bible studies? Does the church, uh, does the early church back up this practice of Bible studies or is it just preaching?
2: Yeah, I think please come, uh, go back and re-listen to last week's talk. Or if you weren't here last week, why don't you download it? It's a great little uh, service we have here and we were talking about that last week. So we use the word preaching for sustained monologue from a pulpit. I don't think the New Testament understands that as the the breadth of preaching ministry. And if you look at Acts and look at every one of the big preaching words, you'll see that they are used in many and various forms for one-to-one work, uh, as somebody's just explaining the gospel to somebody one-to-one, for what is equivalent, just a small group of people, of 10 or 12 people meeting in somebody's house, maybe 20 people, that has, for, for Paul, dialoguing, the word is legato," and he, he dialogues back and forth in the marketplace. And all of that is proclaiming the kingdom, preaching. And so for historic reasons, the Christian church has narrowed down and just defines what goes on from up here or here, sustained monologue, largely uninterrupted, depending how rude the congregation is, um, as preaching. And I think that's actually quite unhelpful because you preach, as you speak the Christian gospel to your friend and colleague at work. Don't undermine this ministry. It's a really important aspect of preaching, but I think all the people of God preach.
3: I think one more question. Having said that, there's quite a lot of questions here. Sorry we haven't got to yours. Some of these, I think, are for William or for me, so do ask us later. Others, why not discuss amongst yourselves as we head over the road, lots of opportunities. Um, William, you did address this in your talk, but I'll ask it then. What if someone was not persuaded yet that they needed this freeing justification? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think I would go back to the law. Uh, And actually, even perhaps if you said, well, I'm not going to go back to the law... Go back to your own best desires for yourself. Uh, make a list of you know, the 10 things you think should be absolutely what you should do to live a right and good life. And then give it a week and go back and say, have I kept that? Um, have a look at the 10 commandments and look at the vertical and the horizontal. Remember, when... Jesus takes the word murder. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. I say to you that if you have even so much as think, you fool, you've already committed murder in your heart. Where does murder start? Anger in the heart. And so don't make yourself a kind of, a, a sort of very easy tick box exercise um, look at what God's law is actually saying. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. and all Have you done that? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that? Realize that God sees, God knows, God hears every moment of every day. And he has to judge us. There is a judgment day awaiting every single one of us. And he has a record of our lives. And then begin to say to yourself, well, do I need saving? So the reason we don't think we need saving is we have such a low view of God and such a high view of ourselves.
3: William, thank you. Worth saying, the teaching of Jesus on the Ten Commandments, which William just referenced, we are looking at this Tuesday in here in our small group Bible studies. You'll see it on the sheet. We're looking at Matthew 5. So why not come along? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're very welcome. Come and ask your questions. Listen to what Jesus says about the state of our hearts.